Welcome to The Thing About Health Coaching, the first ever podcast from Your Coach Health, where we discuss advancements in health and wellness coaching, trends to watch, and the growing body of research. This episode was generated from conversations that occurred at our Global Health and Wellbeing Coaching Symposium in November of 2020, with a focus on how coaches shape happy and healthy humans. Please note that the industry is rapidly changing, so some of the information discussed may be outdated. For the latest compendium of research, be sure to follow along with us and check out our latest health coaching report. We enjoy bringing you each and every episode, and it would mean a lot if you could rate this podcast in your favorite player. And of course, hit that bell to be notified of future episodes. That was so much fun, but now moving on to our first event of the day. Margaret Moore and Dan Kendall guide us through a fireside chat on reimbursement and health coaching. We're experiencing critical shifts of our healthcare system from a sick care system to a well care system, but there's still so much more work to be done. Our services are increasingly viewed as necessary as we achieve better health outcomes and reimbursement is finally on the horizon in order to increase financial accessibility of our services to clients who need us now more than ever. Here are Margaret Moore and Dan Kendall. Hi, I'm Dan Kendall. Welcome to our next session. I'm the host of Digital Health Today and the founder of the Health Podcast Network. I'm really pleased to be with you here today and to bring you our next guest. In this session, we're going to dive into the history of health coaching. We're going to talk about some of the impact of CPT codes and more importantly, how it actually is going to affect the industry and the individuals who are working to transform health and wellness coaching. With me to talk about is Margaret Moore. Margaret is one of the founders of Health and Wellness Coaching. Margaret, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be with you. Now, as I mentioned, you're sometimes referred to as a, a founder of Health and Wellness Coaching. You're also called Coach Meg, so I might call you refer, refer to you as that uh, throughout the conversation. But I think a lot of our viewers will already know a lot about you. But for those of us who might not be as familiar with your background, can you give us a brief insight into how you got into health coaching and what it is that you do? I would be happy to do that, Dan. Um, Great. So I'm a biologist with an MBA, and um, I like being in new industries. And so when I finished my MBA, I got into biotechnology. In fact, um, in the UK, where you are right now. And so that was basically, at the time, the cutting edge of new medicines and vaccines and therapies. And I spent 17 years in that field. And um, as I was thinking about the next phase of my life, I looked around me and I noticed, even in biotech with very smart physicians and scientists, people were not taking good care of the, their daily lives in a way that would both prevent disease or um, ameliorate chronic disease. And so I thought, gosh, you know, what could I do about that? And I was a bit of a health nut anyway. You know, I was, I was exercising when I was 17. You know, I already figured out weight and diet by the time I was probably 18. And I was, you know, I, and I could tell, you know, I was looking, looking young and other people weren't and thinking like, wow, don't other people know what to do? And are, you know, and, and how are we helping them? And so, so as I sort of rethought where to go next, I, I had a dream, a dream which was that we really needed a new professional in the healthcare world whose expertise 
is helping people change mind and behavior, not take pills, not, not, you know, medical procedures, but the expertise to support people, making that a priority in their lives. Now, I know a lot of times it's tempting to look at the current state of an industry and just presume that there have been some minor tweaks along the way. But as you just illustrated, you were basically developing a new type of professional. So can you give us a little history about over the past 10 or 15 years? I mean, we've seen it become much more popular. I mean, Google uh, search results will show that it's actually quadrupled in about the past 12 years in terms of the amount yeah. of times that people are looking for health coaching. But from a pragmatic perspective, can you give us a little bit of a background about how it's evolved over that 15 years and where we are today? Mm -hmm. And I want to ask you next uh, about how the pandemic is affecting the industry. So, but let's first of all, take on some of the history. Can you give us some Well, some so when I started in, in 2000, so it's a little more than 15 years ago, um, with this vision, um, when I shopped around, I realized there was no curriculum to teach coaches in healthcare and wellness that, was sued, that would pass the test with evidence-based in the evidence-based world of medicine. Um, now in, in Europe, there, there uh, is more involvement from psychologists also in Australia, but in the US, um, there really isn't, wasn't a, a, a science-based coaching kind of world. So I started from scratch, you know, I read books, I found experts, I met the experts, you know, built a protocol with a team, like complete scratch designed from now, now, of course, we're, you know, now it's well established, the well coaches protocol has been taught to 13,000 professionals in 50 years. But when I started, there was no protocol that used science based approaches. And so we created that we tested it. It worked in our tests in several groups. We turned it, we opened our school, we started training, we um, kept, continued to capture data. Now there are 12 peer reviewed studies on the Well Coaches Protocol showing significant results and then the whole field. So I was alone in the early days with, within about three, four, five years, like mid 2000s, a couple other groups came along. By 2010, there were about a dozen programs. And at that point, um, I kind of, as a ringleader with um, Karen Lawson at the University of Minnesota got us all together to say, we're only gonna flourish if we agree on common standards and we create a national credential. You know, you can't really make it into healthcare if you don't follow the path of other health professions. And so that group came together. It took us a few years to agree on the standards because we had lots of different worlds. And then we decided we wanted to create a national credential. And um, our good fortune um, was that uh, the National Board of Medical Examiners, which is 105 years old, they developed the first physician licensing exams and have been the, the they've been the responsible party for the exams that lead doctors to become um, licensed physicians. And they have um, an incredible skill set in creating robust uh, exams. So they agreed to partner with us. They had a, independently identified health coaching as the next big thing. Um, they have deep pockets. And so they put significant, significant investment into that credential. And, and that meant then we had, and then we also in parallel agreed that on the standards to train and educate and, and test the coach's skills so that the coach would have to go through an approved program in order to um, sit for the exam. So that mm -hmm. all 
that all came together. The first exam launched in 2017. We're now, I think, in our sixth um, cycle. And so now we had national uh, standards in the United States and different, different things going on in different countries. Um, but a lot of people are looking to this as probably the most robust um, uh, front for standards for this field. That's, that's great background. I mean, I think that that scientific rigor and that debate, and you mentioned that it took a while for you to come up with the standards, that, that de intellectual debate from different perspectives, I'm sure contributed to making a better product in the end. Do you agree? Um, yes, um, uh, because, well, we had a mix of psychologists and physicians. And so we each brought um, we each brought our own backgrounds. We did. I mean, it sharpened our pencils for all of us mm -hmm. because we uh, we were all good trainers. Like we all knew how to um, we knew we knew how to take somebody who wasn't a coach and turn them into a, a competent coach. Um, yeah. And we pretty much were all drawing from the same science base. Um, and and but the, the the vigorous debate most certainly sharpened uh, our approach to what we did. Yeah. And you arrived at some consensus. You have these protocols and these testing mechanisms in place. So now that's all pre-2020. And this year has had a lot of surprises for us. Yeah. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about how the current pandemic has affected the industry? Is this a great opportunity? Do you have a bit of a tailwind now uh, because of what we've been in encountering through the pandemic? Well, um, first, January 1st, 2020, um, the, uh, the American Medical Association, every year it publishes its new manual of all the CPT uh, codes. And in 2019, they approved um, new codes for health and well-being coaching services. Uh, they, they named the coach as a non-physician healthcare professional certified by in the National Board for Health and Wellness Coaching, or um, there's a second credential, which is the certified health educator. So they, so there were two groups. We partnered with them for a bunch of reasons, and um, and so that and and we actually had to go to San Francisco to defend the codes because we had a fairly substantial attack um, late last year, and and so that that we got through that um, just before things shut down. Um, then things shut down. So our next step was then, and we'd independently been in conversations with CMS Medicare around the coach. Um, clarifying the language around the coach using um, existing services under physician supervision. So those two things were happening. And we were really ready to start to talk to the, um, to the health plans, the, the, the industry of health insurance. Um, and the pandemic, of course, arrived and, and um, healthcare had other things to deal with, clearly. You know, right. there were some pretty big priorities. Uh, however, I think what what happened, you know, when we got through the shock of that first phase um, and we learned that the most vulnerable um, people for COVID were uh, folks with obesity and chronic disease, um, that, that in fact there was, and, and, and healthcare has never properly addressed what, you know, we call lifestyle medicine. It's never never there's not been a home there's not been conversations you know your doctor might ask you how much do you exercise and your weight's going up but you don't get any real support you know you you you, you go you go home and you go back to your ways and so i think um it, our field kind of woke up and thought wow this might be the time when this field can actually 
play a role and this might be a good time for me to enter into this field. So we Absolutely. have- Absolutely, and, and oh, I beg your pardon, go ahead. No, and so yes, we have seen growth in demand for training to become a coach as well as uh, for the National Board certification. And, um, and, and as healthcare has recovered a little bit, you know, there's a, there's a, a new energy around, okay, let's figure this out. How, what role does the coach play? What services do they deliver? You know, what, how do I, how do I build the workflow around having the coach on the team? Right. Right. And I mean, we've seen a lot of innovation over the past few months and a lot of adoption mm -hmm. of new technologies, reimbursement codes and regulatory barriers have fallen away as we've had no alternative but to find new ways of delivering care. And as you mentioned, mm -hmm. some of the populations that the industry works with are some of the more vulnerable folks. And those are the same people that are not able to access their normal care uh, care teams and care systems. So it's really, really important to, to have these solutions. That's why I was curious if there was a bit of momentum that was gained through this. Is this really a time to serve and a time to shine and grow while we are uh, some of the traditional legacy systems and access and thoughts and thought processes uh, have sort of fallen away? Yes, I think we're moving in that direction. Um, I will say though, because I'm also an executive coach and I work a lot with healthcare leaders and and so when you look at the system, the state of the system in the United States, um, COVID is, you know, it, we have another wave of COVID and that is taking up the bandwidth um, of most healthcare leaders right now. So I think we'll, I think although we're moving ahead and we're getting ourselves organized, I do think that it'll take us through this next wave and then people will recover and say, oh, now where do we go? And um, right. everyone knows we've got these needs, and I think we'll be able to step into the to the spotlight, and and make our case and um, and convince the, both the healthcare systems and the payers that this is um, important. And let me actually let me add one more very important fact because I want to honor the work of the CDC over the last 20 years in um, in focusing in on the um, the syndrome um, of pre-diabetes. So, so right now in the United States, about 11% of the population has diabetes. Um, however, about 35% has pre-diabetes, which is both, um, you know, usually obesity plus elevated blood sugars. And that group will all have diabetes in the next five to 10 years, unless they change their lifestyle. And what the CDC showed is if you can lose 5% of your body weight, which is not a lot, you know, if you weigh 250 pounds, you know, that's 15 pounds. It's not a lot of weight loss. And you walk half an hour a day, five days a week, you reduce your risk depending on your age between 58 and 71%. That's a big savings. That is actually where there's a huge need. And the, and the CDC created a diabetes prevention program. It's a group program, it's in the community. Now we have an opportunity to bring a more qualified coach and also, and move it into the, into the healthcare system to address that, that that's the next epidemic. So if you think about yeah. it, we had the wave of obesity, next is the wave of diabetes. And then the wave after that will be of dementia. And so this is, this is very uh, big priority in healthcare. So I think people will wake up to that and realize, my gosh, we have to do something about this sooner than later. 
Yeah. Well, you mentioned some of the science behind it and some of the impact that can be made by a simple weight loss. 5% of your body, uh, body weight uh, can lead to some dramatic impacts uh, physically as well as financially. And I don't think we can really talk about scientific uh, bodies of evidence or behavior change without also recognizing the need, <clears throat> excuse me, for business model innovation and business model change. And the CPT codes are a key part of that. So we've talked kind of high level on it, but what does it really mean? Can you dive in deeper on the CPT codes that were, you mentioned that some, the uh, few that were uh, approved back in January, the, the attack that you withstood and, and uh, were victorious over earlier in the year, right before the pandemic hit. Uh, so can we get into some brass tacks about what exactly those CPT codes are and what that means practically to the individuals who are working in the industry, the people who are taking advantage of these services. And then I wanna get into next about how this affects corporates and private uh, private insurers. Right, good. Well, um, what's important about the payment or coverage of services by coaches is that, you know, different from a technology, um, it's only viable if there's sufficient revenue um, for the clinic to pay at least half time salary of a coach. You know, it, it, you can't really just have a few people that get coaching and make it work in, a, in the clinical world, in the, in the financial model. Um, and so, um, so that means there's gotta be a large enough volume of patients that for whom coaching is um, uh, an important um, intervention that can really make a difference. Um, and so we've been working on three fronts in order to um, increase the, the, the financial base uh, to allow that to happen. So one is that um, there, uh, we've been talking to Medicare, um, the C CMS is the, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services in Baltimore, um, um, about the uh, coaches use of um, currently paid for services, currently reimbursed services. So when the Affordable Care Act came along, um, along with it came something called an annual wellness visit. And in, the, um, and, and in that definition, they introduced the health educator to the healthcare team, at, which had never been uh, mentioned in any other services. And, um, and so the, and the health educator was never defined. And so with our legal advisors, who really held our hands because this is a complex process. Um, they helped us form our case to CMS to say it makes sense. And we'd also, with the new CPT codes, which had already been published, we had also included the certified health educator as a, as a, as a coach eligible to use the new coaching codes. So we're basically saying, from a policy standpoint, look at the, the health and wellness coach and the health educator as, as the same professional. And in the case of existing services, the health educator can deliver the health um, annual wellness visit, which fits perfectly with a coach. There's some medical pieces that need a nurse, but, but, the, but the, you, knew, you do a health risk appraisal and you develop a personalized prevention plan, which are well within the scope of a coach. Um, and, um, and there's a fairly good reimbursement for those services. So we said, well, if the coach is, is equivalent to the health educator, and then the health educator is considered by another set of definitions, auxiliary personnel, which can work under physician supervision 
and deliver certain services, then basically the coach can do the annual wellness visit, but they could also deliver obesity counseling services, um, depression and alcohol screening, and they could be on the team delivering chronic care visits. And, and there's also now remote patient monitoring. There's a few things. So we, we, we spent a good you know, 18 months getting that clear so that we could give guidance to the, to the, the coaches you know, and the and healthcare systems is this, you can do it this way. And then, and then we had consultants help us uh, think about the strategy for the new codes, um, which include um, a, one, a, a one hour startup session, a 30 minute ongoing session, um, and then a group session of at least, at least 30 minutes. So we designed a strategy focused largely on this obesity population and prediabetes that I was talking about. And, um, and, and as they say, crosswalking from a sort of equivalent services. So, so that means we can say to payers, you know, you can cover the existing services or we can use the new codes. And it would be um, probably um, sensible to use the new codes because then we can track those services. We can, you know, tweak the, the, the patient groups that get coaching. We can look at what's the optimum dose, you know, lots of things we can do if we keep it separate. So that, those are the kinds of, you know, it's the way we're sort of thinking about approaching the payers. And, and so it's either use existing services or the, or the new codes and then serve this population that everybody understands is, is, is driving over a cliff. How does the introduction of CPT codes actually impact corporates, for example, that are paying for their own healthcare? Um, does, does this help accelerate their adoption of these services yeah. as well? So, yeah, so if, so, um, you know, probably don't remember the exact number, but maybe half of adults are covered under employer healthcare plans and a good number of those, if they're large enough, they are uh, what are, what are called self-insured organizations, which means they have their own insurance. They don't, they, or it's not even insurance. They pay, they pay for all of their healthcare costs. They don't have an insurance plan and they do that because about 35% of health plan costs are administrative. And so they, they, they can save money by, by paying, you know, someone just to do the paperwork and then they make the decision. Those plans still use CPT codes for services. Um, so, so yes, um, self-insured employers can, um, can, can do the same thing. And then once the, the category three codes are sort of introduced, how long is it? What's the sort of time frame between that and actual reimbursement? What's, right. How long does it take? So there's two lanes here. So one lane is that you go back to the AMA. So the, the status of these codes um, is, is category three, which is sort of the entry level. And there are two things, main things that are needed to get to category one, which is then you become, you become, the, the codes become kind of accepted and, and move into, um, certainly Medicare reimbursement doesn't happen until category one and a lot of payers wait until category one. And the, the two things you need to do is to have an evidence base for the, for the services that meets AMA standards. And the second thing is you need to show wide utilization by say hundreds of, 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 of um, coaches you reporting the codes in electronic health records to show that this is happening, even if it's not being paid for. Um, and that, and, and, and we're on the way, the evidence base as it is now meets the AMA standard. So, so we have sufficient studies 
Um, now what we need is to get the tracking data and we've assembled a collaboration of three academic institutions to organize all that and pull all the data into one data set. Um, and then the Veterans Administration is also um, who sponsored the, C the, uh, the new CPT code. So they're also interested. So basically the two groups are collaborating. So within the next couple of years, two, three years, you know, we'll be, we'll be um, getting it done either way, combination of both ways. Oh, and, and then the, the third thing, of, the third, sorry, yeah, sorry. The third thing is the CDC's diabetes prevention program, which already is being paid for by a number of payers. And so we're piggybacking on that success as well. Great. So you have these, these codes in place, the, the uh, industry, the professionals, there's a credentialing system, there's a, a way of certifying and testing and training uh, and developing health and wellness coaches. What's next? I mean, because I imagine the next part is you need to have a demand. And certainly there's a demand in terms of the population that could use it. But how about actually reaching them and having them be aware that this is available and that it can work for them? Yeah, so, so, uh, so the advantage of putting the health, like the health and wellness coach on the clinical team, you know, like primary care team, is that you have a population of people who are um, getting ongoing support, right? Ongoing medical care, because um, the physician, you know, for many people, their relationship with their doctor, primary care doctor is something that goes on for years. And so, it, that that putting the coach into the primary care team is, um, and this is something that you know we've been working toward for a very long time, because coaches work in corporate wellness and they work in private practice. They work in lots of different domains. They work in retirement homes. They work at you know um, my organization, Well Coaches, has turned trained many coaches at the Indian Health Services. So there's coaches in lots and lots of places. The Thing About Health Coaching is brought to you by Your Coach Health, the only operating system for behavior change powered by health coaches. We help a growing roster of industry partners stand up or augment their health coaching operations with the largest supply of validated health coaches and proprietary technology for seamless integration. We are the premier virtual home for health and wellness coaching, an ecosystem built to empower health coaches while expanding access to their services through our industry partnerships. To find out more, head over to yourcoach.health or yourcoachhealth on all the socials. Join us on the health coaching revolution as we strive to deliver the power of health coaching to the 8.5 billion global population by 2030. But um, improving one's health and lifestyle is a lifelong journey. And the advantage of being implanted and embedded in the primary care team is that that's the team that is with you on your lifelong medical journey. And so, um, so when the coach is aligned with the medical team, then the medical team um, is, and, and this is happening, I'm very close to the group that's been doing this at Mass General Hospital for more than a decade. And so the physician and coach are collaborating very closely and, and um, the, the doctor um, has the conversation with the patient in the annual physical or special visits or maybe even an annual wellness visit and, and talks about their health and what are they doing and what do they wanna do? And then can, can determine whether 
they would be willing to get support to change their behavior, to get more engaged and get more um, proactive. And so, so then the physician uses their relationship of trust to say, I really would li like you to work with this coach. Would you, you know, be willing to, um, to uh, try it out? And, and rarely do, you know, when the coach is in the practice and in the office, so to speak, you rarely is it turned down. And if they don't want to this time, they might be a year from now. And so, and, and coaching isn't one and done either. You don't just change your lifestyle and you're done. You know, and if you have multi-year relationship, you know, you can work with a coach in campaigns when, you know, you're ready to work on the next thing. So I think the the longevity of the relationship um, is what makes the um, this the most compelling. And, and we see that in the practices today where they've found funds and grants and other things to pay for the coach, even without reimbursement. What do the coaches need to do to be prepared for being reimbursed? Is it for all coaches or are there particular uh, classifications or groups of, of coaches that are eligible? Right. Well, so, you know, the reason that we put in the decade of work to get to an agreement on standards and a national exam was so that that would be the gate that through which the coach goes in order to be able to work on the healthcare team. Um, because the coach um, um, wants to be accepted as somebody that has um, passed through a gate, just like nurses and social workers and dietitians and everybody else does. So that's why that was so important that we aligned. And I mean, we donated all of us a day or more a week for 10 years. I mean, we really leaned in to make this happen. I mean, we, we've written 600 examination questions. We, the amount of work that it takes to get to this was a work of a very dedicated group, probably like about 10 of us, that, that for years after years after years, we just kept going, you know, sometimes with no money. And so, you know, that, that, that was because we could, get, could see that we could get to this day when um, then there was a credential that the healthcare world would say, ah, oh, okay, ha, huh, there are standards here. These folks have yeah. to learn, you know, how to coach. And, um, and well-trained coaches are effective. They, they engage people, people go through transformational change. You know, they really do change their, their lives with good coaches. And so I think we're there now, we just got to get them get the get the whole system, the systems and the payers on board and then, you know, and then roll it out. I'm going to ask you to bring out your crystal ball for me. I know you have it down there just right out of the camera uh, shot, mm -hmm. right? So if you can just get out your crystal ball and look into the future, I imagine if I'd asked you in February to predict the future, it would probably have been very different to what we've experienced. But looking ahead and given your two decades working in the health and wellness coaching industry, what do you sort of foresee as we emerge from this pandemic in the months and year mm -hmm. or so to come, and we get into the next phase of all these pent up health demands that are that are right. continue to exist while we're being uh, occupied with other activities inside the healthcare system and without the, the healthcare system. And then uh, beyond that, as the population continues to grow, uh, both in number uh, and in a number of cases with these various uh, health conditions. Yeah. You know, I'd like to um, reframe that question from what's the crystal ball to, you know, what, what are we, what path are we putting into place? Because it's up to us coaches to make this happen. You know, it's not going to happen if we don't get up every day and continue to do what we do to get the message across to spread around. So we're making the future. Um, and, um, and, uh, 
the ecosystem of healthcare is vast. And I mean, as a Canadian who also lived in the UK, the complexity here is mind boggling. It's mind boggling how complex. So it would be naive of me to make any predictions anyway, because there's so many moving parts and there's so many forces and it's, you're talking about big tech, big, big payers. And so how a gang of coaches, <laughs> well-meaning, well-intentioned, very capable, competent coaches, how do we actually change the system is no small feat. Um, I do think though, the, uh, the need is so great um, that, you know, people need help. Um, they need, you know, they need help with, so, so um, one, one little bit of science, science um, there's a meta-analysis of 48 health behaviors, and there are two variables that determine whether people make sustainable health behavior changes or not. And, um, and it's, the, it's the relationship of your internal motivation and your confidence or the number of, which is also measured by the number of obstacles you have. And um, 80% of adults for in any given behavior, it's same in workplace behaviors, 80% of people do not have adequate motivation or confidence to make sustainable change in behavior. It's not gonna happen by themselves. I mean, maybe with community programs, the conversations that are needed in group or one-on-one -on -one are how do you help someone um, fire up their, their interest? And they're not interested in health per se. They're interested in the, the, the life they can lead if they're in good health. And that connection doesn't get made until you lose your health. Yeah. And so the only way to get at your deepest motivation is to have someone in a deep conversation about you know, what, what's important about this for you? What is it? And then yeah. the second part is that you take the motivation, the energy for fuel, and you have to build the competence and the skills and the, and the um, what's called efficacy by psychologists. And in neuroplasticity terms, the um, Alvaro Pascual Leone at Beth Israel, who's a neurologist and an expert in neuroplasticity teaches us that you can only grow one millimeter of neural network a day. And that means you can't make a, a major overhaul in your lifestyle in weeks or months. It's an ongoing continuous process of building skills, building new neural networks. That's real change, that's not easy. And to do that by yourself and without the skills is you know, really difficult. And, and so that's really why I started out in this field was to, was to create the skill set that could consistently help people find their intrinsic motivation, build their confidence, get healthier and live a great life. And, and it's not just physical health. We now know that your emotional health, then, then as per your number of positive emotions you have every day, and your satisfaction with your life are actually at least if not more impactful on your physical health than the other way. And that's because physiologically positive emotions improve um, vagal tone and, and immune system function and downstream from that and ultimately reverse the results of, of, of chronic disease and loneliness and depression and, and stress 
you know, impairing your immune system and driving you down the road of chronic disease. So, so, and, but you need to have enough positive emotions to engage It's a new study out this year from a big Gallup survey. You need to have a sufficient level of positive emotions to engage in healthy behaviors. So you don't just get the physical hit, physiological hit of positive emotions, you actually need. So that means people have to, and, and right now half the population is depressed, anxious, PTSD, grieving. They don't have the positive emotions, the psychological resources to make sustainable change. That doesn't happen by itself. Yeah. You know, it just doesn't. And so it's essential that we've got people who have the skills that know how to have those conversations that move people you know, over the long term through the process. Well, you need to have them, you need to have them trained and you need to attract yeah. more people to replace them, right? Because people aren't going to live forever and work forever. Uh, so you need to make sure that there's a, a, a group of people okay. that are aspiring to become health coaches and create awareness around the industry uh, so they can attract the, the people. So how can the industry attract more people into the profession? And what sorts of people should consider health coaching, health and yeah. wellness coaching as a career? There, there's no shortage of people who want to become coaches, um, you know, as soon because, um, I mean, I mean, if you wanted to have kind of a wild prediction, it probably won't, may, may not happen in my lifetime. But um, if we do our job well, you know, in over decades, there will be need for fewer hospital beds and fewer hospital employees and medical employees, and they'll all move into coaching. They're, the health professional world, um, you know, nurses, social workers, dietitians are, are looking for something new. They're looking to, to do something that, because they're sitting watching their patients in the hospital get heavier, get sicker. They're just watching it helplessly. And, and the reason they, they decide to become coaches is because they want to reverse, they want to do something before it gets too late. And so there's no shortage. There's millions of nurses. There is no shortage of people to become coaches. Um, it, it, what the, the, the limiting factor more is that we need to create the models, the, you know, the business models that show the, the return on investment so that, so that the investment is made so that people can shift from one role to another. So critical. And so one of those chicken and egg situations, you need people going through the program in order to have the, the quantity of people that you can uh, yeah. produce a study that has relevance and, and you're able to, to uh, demonstrate the, the rigor uh, and the effectiveness uh, for that population. So uh, we're running up to our last few minutes together. So I wanted to ask you, in your years of experience, having worked with a lot of coaches, having, I'm sure, seen a lot of people uh, seeking health coaching, can you give me a couple of examples or maybe just one key example um, about how this has really made a difference in an individual's life in terms of their own performance and their relationships and their yeah. longevity. Uh, and, and let's sort of, sort of break this away from sort of the numbers and the industry discussion and really break this down to N equals one. Tell me about that one person that really touches you that you think uh, that you're glad that you were able to have a, a, a moment in Do their life. You mean life. me personally? Yes. Yeah. Um, um, or, or, or someone that yeah, you've so, no, so you, you worked with a lot of professionals as well. Yeah. So. Yeah, um, I, I one one story, and it's actually an entire uh, C-suite team of a big company um, um, where um, someone with diabetes was able to lose enough weight to go off his meds and and not be considered diabetic any longer within just a few months, um, and. Um, 
I mean, there's lots of stories. Um, I, I, the, the, for me, the, the most, um, and, and, you know, just to, just to see someone think they'll be on meds for the rest of their life, they'll never be able to drop a few bad habits. You know, they're going to carry this weight for the rest of their life. And then just finding the combination of a few behaviors together, their own formula. Because if you look at the research, you end up with bell curves. You know, if you do, you know, certain number of people following this protocol will get the results, but the others on the both sides of the bell curve, um, or the others on the on the downside of the bell curve, it didn't help. So there's no way we can hand people a formula. It has to be something that they discover in partnership with a coach. And I just remember the joy of this gentleman discovering that formula. I, I, I he um, uh, texted me when I was traveling. And he said, Meg, my numbers, I can't believe it. This is what's happened. I, I mean, the joy of that, you know, you save lives, right? You, you can tell. The other, the other, for me, the most heartwarming stories were um, I coached um, four people with fibromyalgia. We then went on to build a protocol for fibromyalgia. Um, and um, if you know about fibromyalgia, it's a really, really tough condition with a lot of pain and no one understands. I mean, there, there's clearly a nervous system, biological, physiological thing going on, but we've not been able to find, I know one group has found a blood metric that distinguishes fibromyalgia, um, but it's not mainstream yet. And so, and so, um, so those folks suffer miserably. Mm -hmm. And um, my mother, um, I always say died of chronic pain. It's a long story, but I wanted to help people with pain. And um, those were um, really interesting, you know, year long programs um, because they started with hopelessness, helplessness, you know, just like, I, I just don't see yeah. and ever coming out of this. And step-by-step, step, little by little, focusing on their well-being not medications, not, you know, I mean, they, they had their own other programs. They got to a place where they could live a pretty normal life. Did they have no pain? No. But by investing in their well-being every day, they could have a productive part of their day. Oh, and the third one I would That's say amazing. is, yeah. um, sorry, yeah. do I have time for one more? Just really yeah. quick. Yeah, yeah, we're in the yeah. last 30 so seconds. A woman, so. with, a woman with stage four metastatic uh, bre uh, breast cancer. Um, and, um, when you have metastatic cancer, the doctors drop you off at the side of the road and they'd say, there's nothing else we can do. And, um, we had, she lived another few years. We had an amazing year of coaching that opened up a whole kinds, lots of new projects for her. She went on to like a whole sort of creative phase in her life, um, after that. And that was also, I mean, it was hard when she died. But um, yeah, yeah, we, we as coaches, um, the opportunities we have to help people are profoundly, amazingly good. It's so important. And thanks for sharing those stories. And, and I'm, I'm glad that you thought of all three of those, those cases. I think many members of the audience can relate to some of those individuals personally and professionally as well. So really glad that you were able to have that impact with those individuals. And certainly I like to think about all the impact on their relationships and mm -hmm. on the, the people that, that care about them and they care for uh, that we're able to have that additional quality of life. 
uh, during their time after their, their diagnosis or in the, the course of their health journey. So I want to say thank you very much, not just for your time today, but also for all your decades of commitment, your calling to this industry to create, inform, and be part of the foundation of this industry. It must give you a lot of joy to know that this is going to continue to grow and flourish uh, for the years and decades and even centuries to come. So uh, Coach Meg, Margaret Moore, thank you so much for taking time and being a part of the, uh, the conference today. Thank you, Dan. It was lovely to be with you.